The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9 a.m. on News Talk. In 2021, Hughes's Pub in Chancery Street in Dublin, adjacent to the Four Courts, closed its doors for the final time. Now, it was a mecca for many of the traditional musicians from around Dublin City. Actor Brendan Gleeson was one of them, and a brand-new documentary entitled Brendan Gleeson's Farewell to Hughes's is effectively a love letter to the establishment he frequented so often to play. Brendan, good morning. Morning, Pat. I know it's the morning, but we're here to talk about a pub. Indeed. Indeed, an early morning pub, actually. <laughs> as, as it happens. <laughs> yeah. It's a pub called Hughes, which is, alas, no longer functioning as a pub. But tell me about your first encounter with Hughes. Yeah, I'm going to call it Hughes because that's who everybody knows. As that, in James and, Street. And I, as in James Street. And, uh, I, you know, there was absolutely a discussion about the documentary about whether we should be grammatically correct. And I insisted, no, it's S apostrophe S Hughes uh, because it seems... Um, impossible to call it anything else after all the years. But it was a great place uh, just in behind the markets um, in upper at the back of the forecourts. And I came across, I, I was in it in the 70s because I knew somebody who had a connection with the markets and used to work in there. And uh, I meet, meet, met them in there before it became a music pub. And it was an early house like a lot of the places up around there. And uh, it was also beside the forecourt, so you had all the legal eagles who would go in there at lunchtime. And so, so it, it had two lives, the early morning life. Early morning people life. People coming in to sell their wares in the fruit and veg market and the fish market. They'd go repair for a, a drink and a sandwich, maybe? Yeah, well, they'd start up when... They'd start, like, uh, my wife's family is Rush, and um, my, like, her father would have come in with his father on the Aston cart from Rush 20 miles out wow. with the fruit and veg for the, into the fruit market. Uh, and all the traders and all the people who'd be coming from various places with fruit and veg, and at that time, uh, the fish would be happening as well. Fish market was still there. So they'd be finished, they'd be starting at two o'clock in the morning or something to, in order to get, you know, their wares in there. So their day was over. There was like a night shift. Mm-hmm. So Hughes used to open and a lot of those bars around there and the pubs used to open at about seven. Um, and they'd come in and they'd be <laughs> looking for a, a coffee uh, or something. And it was very funny. I made that joke in the documentary about where, yeah, where they're looking for a coffee because uh, some of them would be banging on the door at a quarter seven and said, would you ever open up? But uh, they said they actually, some of the Italians used to go in there and have coffee and sometimes with a little something in it and I said where, where do the Italians have fruit and veg and I said well chips chips the chips potatoes potatoes exactly and so so and they'd be in the fish market obviously as well so uh, it had a huge life within the centre of the city as a, as a market's pub and then because the forecourts were there they had all this thing the lawyers would come over sometimes with their clients and various other people and there was a sort of a, a neutral ground in it where things, you know, everybody... So the adversaries would... Yeah. I heard a few very, very interesting stories about uh, various people and some of the time the cops would be in there and the, the robbers would be in there and to be hooshing each other out of the snug. And it was just, it's, it was an extraordinary, it always was an extraordinary place. There was always something about it with me. And uh, anyway, over the years, so in the 80s then, at some stage, Brendan Baggy, who's... You know, Brown Donovan, he's a um, great Kerry musician and um, he was here and through a family connection, they wanted to have a bit of set dancing in the pub. And he said, well, I know a place where, you know, the nighttime, it's quite quiet at the nighttime, maybe that would work. 
And it, so they started doing it and suddenly it took off um, because all the traditional music people, the network of it, found out that this was a place that was welcoming. And they started to come and it became this phenomenon. And so for 35 years, it served as a kind of a mecca for any, all traditional music in Dublin that happened. Uh, and it, was, it had the most extraordinary influence on me because it was an absolute oasis, a total safe haven yeah. from the very beginning to the very end. And there was a wonderful sort of a feeling of ease. And some of the music that happened in it was of such a, such a high caliber. Um, we have Sean McGinley in the documentary saying that some of the best artistic experiences of his life, and that, that's the way of putting it succinctly. But he claims that he wasn't a musician, but you uh, defy him in that. You say, no, there were times when the hand went into the pocket. <laughs> I know. Sean is incredible. Like, he's an extraordinary person. He's a brilliant actor, but he is an extraordinarily articulate um, mind and also he has a huge connection like his family in Donegal I think Johnny Doherty who was this old travelling um, fiddle player used to drop in to them at some point so he's he's he's, he's such a, uh, a, a his cultural kind of depth is fathomless uh, Sean and so he has connections with the music and he does play the whistle but he was very loath to uh, but in, we inveigled him anyway in Hughes's and Mary Corcoran, who played in that Sunday night session, was very, very persuasive in ways of trying to, you know, cajole him in. And he was very shy about it. But he has, as I said to him, he has more music in his little finger yeah. than I have in my entire body or that, you know, half the pub had. It, he, he just has all this depth of stuff. Um, but he, he, I remember him talking about even being sitting on the inside of the session, how different it was from being even listening. And just how much more kind of enveloping it was and engaging with what was... Like, so the experience that happened there, I was very lucky to be sitting in there. Gamie Keown grew up in Artane beside where we were. And I've known them all my life. I, I went to school with his brother and all that kind of stuff. But they were traditional music guys. I, our family wasn't mm -hmm. particularly. And so it was all a learning curve for me. So being invited into that session there to sit... I'm not that good a musician. I had no business being there. But it was like, it, the thrill of it was extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And just coming home sometimes from being away, the bam that it would, for your soul, coming in, sitting in here, and there's all this communication, no need for words. It's just all this... And all that Hollywood stuff that surrounds you gets stripped away. Well, it's not and the Hollywood stuff. And you're kind of the wannabe fiddler when you when We wannabe fiddler, but also all the other stuff that happens when I'm home about... I mean, I can imagine you're pestered yourself, Pat, uh, at times. The things that where you don't have to, like Mary would kind of <laughs> stick me into the back where I didn't have to, like the selfie madness that goes on where, where people can't, you know, they can't actually just scratch their head, but they have to take a photograph of it. It just, uh, it became, it was just free of it. Yeah. Now, you do grant one selfie in the, in the <laughs> documentary, and we won't go into that. People can watch oh, and yeah. see it for, I, it for themselves. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, 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 I came across a song I hadn't really known before in the documentary, The Pride of Pimlico. Pride of Pimlico, yeah. And listen to me lay About a lovely damsel as fair as any may Who's caused much tears and sorrow And grief and heartfelt woe 
It's Kitty Quinn I'm speaking of, the pride of Pimlico. Very interesting composer, Arthur Griffith, yeah, made, made it up. And, um, and then uh, Kevin from the Chieftains, uh, Kevin Kniff, Kevin Kniff from the Chieftains, uh, Put a put it to an old an old air and sang it, and my brother Barry sings it in the in the in the pub. But it's the last thing you'd imagine from from Arthur Griffith. I mean, you can forget about your Molly Malone, forget about your Rosa Tralee, the pride of Pimlico. <laughs> She's the one. She is the one. She is the one. Yeah, no, it's very funny and how like she had half the half the half of Dublin like in in a, in a in a in a in a kind in a of a, in a mayhem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> people would even give up the drink for her. People would even give up the drink for her. Yeah, no, it was just extraordinary the lengths of people. <laughs> uh, it was good fun. But we used to like the thing about Hughes as well was that there were kind of, you know, there'd be different people come in. So Brendan Begley talks about a four-legged pot, which was very, we kind of structured the documentary around the idea of it. And that we when we were, we had 5 days in the pub. Because um, the pub was closed at this pub point. pub was closed. And we asked Martin, listen, do you need this like a hole in the head? But I'd like to pay a tribute. To, if we could go back into the pub, would you mind awfully? And I said, not at all. And we went in. We had five days to go in with the crew. And we tried to get as many of uh, the aspects of tr- Hughes as we could into it as a kind of a tribute. But also to mark it and to kind of communicate. There's a kind of a beauty possible in the music scene that, that's, that is a little un- underestimated. It's, it's mm. kind of hiding in plain sight. And it demands respect and things like that. And I kind of did want to just mark the degree of beauty that was possible within that very unprepossessing pub to look at it from the outside. So, so getting in there, we, there was, you know, there, Brendan Begley talked the four-legged pot that in a pub in, in, or in any gathering in Kerry. You'd have singing, you'd have dancing, you'd have storytelling and, and the actual music. And that they mixed up. In Dublin at that time, they were all separate. Yeah. They tended to be to be a singer's club, to be a musician's piper's place, club. to be a piper's whatever. In Hughes's, it all it all converged, and so that there was. This, so we tried to give those different aspects in the thing and show them, but it was the level to which people felt comfortable with each other, and really was about the people in the end. And the set dancing too, which yeah. is not the kind of rigid hands by your sides Irish dancing. People actually touch each other, which is kind of <laughs> nice. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it was funny because um, this, yeah, this, the the set dancing, um, uh, what do they call it? Brooks Academy. You know that that's what they used to call it. Well, it's still there, I think. They they started kind of gathering a lot of the set dancers that would be lost around the place or being danced down wherever down mm-hmm. in Kerry or Clare or. And they're all, we're all over the country and they were still available. So they gathered them and they began to go and have classes in the Piper's Club, I think, at one stage. They were, they were all in different spots. But they started dancing in as a social thing in, in Hughes's. And that's really what kicked everything off. So, um, yeah, it, it could be... There's, there's a, a particular party, which I wasn't at, by the way. There was somebody's birthday or something that was in the archive. They found in an archive. Somebody had got a video of it. And there's a conga line goes in and out of the jacks, for example, uh, that I just think is the funniest thing I've ever seen. Because yeah, the, the instrumentalists are playing their instruments playing the, in the conga line. They are, yeah, it was like, <laughs> and that was Begley, of course, yeah. and all the rest of it. But it was just, what, what, what was fantastic, I never saw a shred of trouble in the, in the pub ever. There was a gentleness about what happened in there, and you could be as wild as you wanted. You couldn't really, you know, make it sort of put, put the block on, but uh, 
there was there was a kind of a wildness possible that had no malevolence that had no that people you know there was a kind of a freedom in it that and an ease i was just fantastic crack but if anybody started stepping outside the line they'd be given short shrift and out they would like it there was a very disciplined different uh, safe place to be is what i'm saying yeah you, you make an observation as you're playing t- for this documentary and it's a lovely sunny day outside and the Lewis is passing and all that. And, <laughs> and you're looking out and you're imagining a fella jogging by and your reflection is... <laughs> it seems really decadent to be inside the pub. And we were drinking Guinness Zero, by the way. If just, you know, if anybody... We just decided that, uh, it's, you know, there's no harm to have... Uh, even if, You know, if you feel like it, you can have a pint of whatever, of Guinness Zero or whatever. But it was just odd to be... In a in a snug, and it was a really beautiful day outside. And I think it was Barry and my brother said, "Yeah, you know, when you'd be inside looking out, and you'd say, Jeez, look at those idiots running around the place, you know, in their jogging shorts. Would they not get a bit of sense? We're having extraordinary sort of crack in here. And then if you're outside looking in, you're saying, would those reprobates, like degenerates, ever get out and do something constructive? But it was an absolute. It was a. It was a." It was a fantastic. Um, it was a fantastic milieu. You just went in there, and there was so much sort of uh, possible within it. And the, the, we had a screening at one stage just for everybody involved in the film. And we went back to use that night, mm-hmm. or in the evening, and just for a couple of hours. And watching people's body language was extraordinary. Everybody on the crew, anybody, anybody who had all the musicians that were there. There was a kind of an ease and a comfort with way, you know, they weren't sitting in the same places that they would sit like yeah. or for years. But everybody kind of, I just said, look at the way people are, are, are standing. There was such ease with the way mm. everybody communicated with each other. And there was a kind of a sadness because they, about five different people said to me, oh, I just realized I'm not going to ever be here again. Yeah. yeah. And, and there is a, a kind of discussion within the documentary about, um, if this was, say, a, an endangered snail, it would be protected. <laughs> yeah. Uh, on the other hand, there is an arc to places like this. They yeah. come, they live, they prosper, and then they kind You've of You've got to leave them away. go, yeah. You've got to leave them go. And it's the whole thing that you don't force it. You don't force it. And you don't put a commercial imperative on it. Like, I mean, I, I, I've said in a few Q&As now, I hate ruining my own good lines, but it wasn't my line, it was Martin's line. I asked, I asked him at one stage that I was, you know, being interviewed for films or stuff like that. And the people would say, well, I believe you play a bit of music. I said, do you want me to mention it? I didn't want to mention it because I didn't want to blow the cover. Where, like, and Martin said over the phone, this one I was asking him if he would do the documentary. And he said, and, and, and what? Welcome to, to, what, to what? Welcome in a, an apocalypse of hipsters. And I was like... <laughs> It was. <laughs> I don't know. How, I don't know how else to put it. But there was a kind of a feeling of um, every so often, uh, some bus would turn up with a bunch of tourists who'd come in, look, yeah. not see, and go. And it was like, n- what was lovely about there was, this is where it happened. You're always welcome, but gave it a certain amount of. You just understood you didn't know anything about this. Yeah. Instance, but you know? I, I remember in O'Donoghue's years ago, where yeah. I used to spend a lot of time. There'd be Americans who'd come in and they'd order a half pint of Guinness. Yeah. It would sit there yeah. and they would occupy the valued seat for three and a half hours on no, a half the Italians, pint. The Italians used to, the Itali- there was a place down in Boyle and in the, the Cayley House bar, it was called, Mrs. Morris would be there and she said, would you look at the crowd that's just in? And 
the Italians would come in and they'd order a pint between seven of them. <laughs> and they, they would add glass of waters and maybe, you know, I don't think she was doing coffee. And they would sit there and they were lovely people, but there were people absolutely dying to come in here and hear Packy Dignan or somebody that would be playing up in the way. And they just, uh, it was very funny. Like, the thing is, nobody's trying to be precious about it, but the thing is, it is precious. Um, and what's, what's possible is that, as I say, what had happened in Hughes is that people go quiet because they want to be part of what's going on. Yeah. Well, they don't be quiet because it's like being in school, stay quiet and listen to the music because you, that's what you're supposed to do. It's that people would naturally hush because something extraordinary was happening over there in the corner. Somebody was playing something, somebody was singing something. And that's the difference between an imposed... Uh, was, it, was it Brandon O'Beal Gloria who talked about... Um when the Heenies were in town, uh, the shows of Ahena and yeah. the family, and the, suddenly the pub would be uh, a Gaelic pub. Everyone would speak Irish. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it was it, like people, people from all over the country then be, became extraordinarily comfortable in it. And it would be where you'd head because... Um, and what, what I love about it, it's going into the Dublin Film Festival now, and it was sold out within minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a Dublin pub that not an awful lot of Dublin people were aware of. I'd be getting into a taxi going in and saying, Hughes, yeah, where's that again? And uh, it was, again, hiding in plain sight. So it became, and an awful lot of the musicians, say Liam O'Connor and people like that who runs the ITMA and who's in that, he talks about (laughs) the snail's habitat. Uh, Brilliant musicians, Dublin lads, Dublin women, all the women, the women's session, you know, Dublin girls. And so this music was becoming a real living Dublin thing, as well as obviously all the influence that was coming from outside. And it was a fantastic melting pot. It completely uh, does away with the idea of a generation gap. There are yeah. people from the youngest to the eldest. There's some shots of Jerry O'Byrne as a young man. That's right. And the kind of backing he's giving to traditional music was yeah. just so innovative and, yeah. and so ahead of itself. In Absolutely, way. yeah, way ahead of Dennis Cal. And um, it's just, it, all of this was, high, it was a really breeding ground, but also the respect for the older players and the old, what the old little, small, little, small print that was in the tune was there all the time as well. So just trying to, like, I just think that what we have here, we have an artistic expression that is, has come straight from our culture that is a little bit underestimated. Uh, I don't think it's ever in danger of falling away because the amount of musicians, and the, every, the music is thriving and it's thriving globally. I mean, it's everywhere. Um, but it's, it's, it's harnessing that thing. It's the gentle touch. It's the little, you know, the, just being able to calm down with it. Um, I, don't, I don't think people quite understand what is possible with it. Uh, and I've had it for 35 years and I just wanted to be able to communicate um, you know there's marvels to be found in traditional music well, it's an important uh, historical document alas that's what it will become uh, for Hughes's um, on another tack entirely you know you're on the curriculum for the Leaving Search and the Banshees no oh yes. well thanks be to God it makes yourself a, and Barbie it, it, it <laughs> makes a change from cock and millish <laughs> I've been stuffing my face with a cake for 30 years on the poor Leaving Cert students oh honest to God uh, yeah but uh, that's great I'm glad I'd stand over the branches any day um, I just, wonderful and of course we're in Oscar season again yeah yeah Killian won the BAFTA the other night so that's fantastic that's fantastic good man himself uh, and Oscar glory perhaps you can never tell ah look it's it's 
the nomination can never be taken away. That's what I took away from the whole thing. Was the nomination can take never be taken away. And after that, it's showbiz, and it is what it is. And he's either, you know, he's lucky or he's not. Yeah. It's, the point is, the nomination has happened. The film will be seen everywhere. His performance is brilliant and is being seen. The joy of the Oscars situation for me last year with Colin was that you walk into a room with the kind of uh, creative overload of them, the people who are, a section of people who are the best in the world or what they do. And you're looking around the place and it's filled with these people and all the other stuff doesn't matter. Yeah. It's like, it's magnificent for him to be going there and he should be there in the middle of all the best of the best. You know, and there are loads of people on the outside who should be there, blah, blah, blah. The fact is that in that room, he's in a place sharing with extraordinary creative talents like himself. So it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And he's flying the flag for us. And Paul Meskel and old, and old Andrew Scott and old and Barry, all the people who are in there. It's just extraordinary the talent that's coming through from, from everywhere here. Like, it's just the future is buzzing. It's fantastic. Uh, what's your year like, 2024? I'm not sure. Um, I, I, this, I'm, this, this was a labour of love, so I'm, I'm loving the fact that we have a theatrical release with this. So it means I'm getting to do a couple of more Q&As than I thought I, I might do. I was quite prepared for this to flow underneath the radar. If it did, uh, be nice, though, if people were had access to it. Yeah. So it's going into the lighthouse for a little bit, so that'll kind of occupy me for the next uh, while. And then um, after that, I think I'm doing a thing called H for Hawk, uh, I, but that's they're going to Berlin, I think, to get money. So I don't even know if it'll happen. But I, I hope it is uh, that it'll happen. And it's kind of based on a book that was a bestseller about uh, a woman who lost her father and found it very difficult to cope with it. So f- it's it's for one, it's for once it's looking at a benign father, yeah. and he's already dead. So the part is relatively limited in flashback. But it's a, a, a woman trying to come to terms with the fact that, that basically her soulmate was her dad. And it's a beautiful thing. And just if, just a kind of a, what do they, they, they call it? Uh, kind of a, an odd kind of coincidence. There was a friend of mine down in Clare, uh, Jerry Roach, and he gave me a book um, called The Goshawk mm-hmm. years ago. And he, he said it's about a person trying to tame a goshawk. And it's the relationship between the untamable and lo- knowing the humility the pat kenny show with aviva insurance weekdays at 9am on news talk